0: Would you bow with me in a word of prayer before we open up God's word together? Father in heaven, we return again to a Christmas season. And very easily we could miss the wonder of God coming in the flesh. Um, It could get old or passe or trumped up as some fairy tale. And I would just ask that by your grace, what is the most true and amazing fact in history would uh, pierce our hearts and change our lives. Pray that you would speak now through uh, your word to all here. We pray for those not able to be with us today for various reasons. And just pray that you would be near them, that they would be blessed in the Lord as well. In Jesus' name, amen. The doctor's waiting room, which was very small, was almost full when the Turpins entered, and Mrs. Turpin, who was very large, made it look even smaller by her presence. She stood looming at the head of the magazine table set in the center of it, a living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. Her little bright black eyes took in all the patience as she sized up the seating situation. This is how Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, begins. And as the story continues, we hear inside Mrs. Turpin's head, as well as some of her voiced opinions as she sits in the waiting room, her first opinion is that the overpaid doctor could spend a little money to improve the waiting room. Then Mrs. Turpin begins to feel a sense of pity for the ugly ugly college girl beside her. Her attention shifts to a couple she describes as white trashy. Flannery O'Connor sums up her opinions with, "'Worse than Negroes any day,' Mrs. Turpin thought. Mrs. Turpin grades every single person in the room, airs many of her opinions to a well-dressed woman nearby." Later, she speaks extremely condescendingly to a black errand runner, and when he leaves, she speaks cruelly to about all African Americans. Eventually, Mrs. Turpin gives a little speech about just how grateful to God she is not a black person or a member of the white trash. At this point, the ugly college girl explodes with pent-up rage at Mrs. Turpin, calls her an ugly warthog from hell, and chucks the book she was reading at Mrs. Turpin's face. Later that night, while taking care of the hogs back at the farm, we overhear Mrs. Turpin talking to God. Why me, she rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to and break my back to the bone every day working, and do for the church. She couldn't believe that this ugly girl had called her a warthog from hell. And it's about this moment when God gives Mrs. Turpin a vision. Here is O'Connor's description. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth, through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black Negroes in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs, and bringing up the end of of the procession, was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet, she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were burning away. So this morning I read a few lines from a book by Miles Stanford from back in 1975, and Miles writes, There are two questions every person must settle as soon as possible. Does God fully accept me? And if so, upon what basis does he do so? These were questions Mrs. Turpin thought she had answers to, but her encounter with God proved otherwise. Today we look at a fascinating encounter that Jesus has with another woman, but she, unlike Mrs. Turpin, has better answers. Answers we need to see ourselves. So, I'm in Mark chapter 7. Listen to this account that Mark preserves for us of Jesus, verses 24 through 30. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found her daughter lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Now, for 21st century years this story comes off quite demeaning. In the wake of the Me Too movement, uh, that's done a great job, I believe, highlighting the gross abuse of women in our country. You read a story like this, and you're like, "What is Jesus doing?" Because sadly, in homes, businesses, Hollywood, and churches, men have treated women as second-class citizens and used their power to abuse and exploit. And it would be tempting to think that Jesus is affirming mistreatment of women, but beware, this is not what Jesus is doing. In fact, though Christianity has its own fair share of black eyes in the history with women, by and large, for 2,000 years, Christianity has been the greatest liberator of women You see it in a very short form of what's happened in Afghanistan over the last 20 years with women receiving education and rights and protection from abuse. There was a sociology professor back in uh, 2001 who describes the impact of women since the first century that Jesus has had. He writes, The extremely low status that the Greek, Roman, and Jewish women had for centuries was radically affected by the appearance of Jesus Christ. His actions and teachings raised the status of women to new heights, often to the consternation and dismay of his friends and enemies. By word and deed, Jesus went against the ancient, taken-for-granted beliefs and practices that define women as socially, intellectually, and spiritually inferior. So come back with me Mark 7. Right. So you might have your, your head scratching a little bit on this encounter, so I want to give you the main purpose that I believe Mark has for this text, and then we'll... We'll, we'll develop that. I think his, pers- his, his, his purpose for us and in, in the original audience was this. To learn that we should come without pedigree to Messiah Jesus because his mercy is more than sufficient. Come without pedigree to Messiah Jesus because his mercy is more than sufficient. So let's look at the two parts. First. Come without pedigree to Messiah Jesus. So here we have a woman in the vicinity of Tyre. Uh, It says in verse 25, this woman comes and she has a little daughter possessed by an evil spirit and she's falling at Jesus' feet. The description in verse 26 says she's a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. Now, all of these descriptors would have said that she is an undesirable. She's born in enemy territory for the Jews. Tyre had been a long-time enemy. It's a land of foreigners and pagans. Mark describes her spiritual heritage by calling her a Greek, which is synonymous with a Gentile, which is synonymous with worldly She's part of the evil world. She worships the wrong God, and she lives the wrong ways. Add to that, she's a woman with a demon-possessed daughter. The closest 21st century comparison that I came up with would be like a single mother of Muslim background with a criminal record and facial tattoos who herself has a criminal record, raising a daughter who's in and out of juvenile homes who struggles with mental illness. Hearing that a religious leader has showed up in town and is dining at the mayor's house and has busted through the door and is begging the religious leader to help the disturbed daughter. This woman has no pedigree. Now that term pedigree, like... A lot of times we think of like people on the East Coast, you know, they raised with good breeding, sent to a good private school, matriculated into an Ivy League institution and garnered a good job in New York City or Boston, Massachusetts. But we're Midwesterners, so we don't think that's good breeding, right? We want to, you know, pull up your bootstraps, hard work in person, um, you know, Good education, but not overly focused on education. Uh, care about God and morale, morality, but not in a too fanatical way. Get a good career, but nothing too highbrow. Attend church, some other religious institution, but don't get too carried away. Be a nice Iowan. All right, that's good breeding. But our standards really aren't that different than Mrs. Turpin. And Flannery O'Connor's story. Could it be that our sense of goodness is the very thing that keeps us away from God? Could it be that the very thing that we think marks goodness and respectable keeps us from God? Think about what's going on in Mark 7, right? When does this encounter occur? This encounter occurs just after Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the true nature of what it means to be pure. He's just taught them being unclean has nothing to do with external factors. With the foods that you eat, the home of origin, or the friends that you keep, it's a matter of the hearts. And now in walks a feminine, ostracized outsider with no hope and no help in the world. She's spiritually lost, she's unclean, and she's unacceptable to polite society and the religiously pious And what Jesus is doing is, much like in kindergarten, where you do show and tell, this is what's going on. Jesus has told them about the kind of people he receives, and now he's showing them. They're watching. You know, so for one reason or another, you may feel like an undesirable, with no pedigree, without hope or help in this world. Maybe you lack the physical traits that our culture defines as beauty. Maybe you have a felony in your background, a history with drugs, or a broken family. Maybe you drive the wrong kind of car, work the wrong kind of job, or hang out with the wrong kinds of friends. Maybe you have no car, no job, and no friends. But take heart, Mr. and Mrs. Undesirable, because if you seek an audience with Jesus, he's available. The greatest person, the greatest person in the universe, pulls this woman in in his own unique way. And he ultimately answers the cry of this woman's heart. Come without pedigree to Messiah Jesus. But why? This is part two. Because Jesus' mercy is more than sufficient. Come without pedigree to Messiah Jesus because his mercy is more than sufficient. Back to verse 26. The woman, the Greek woman born in Syrian Phoenicia, she begs Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Jesus says, First, let the little children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Now, this is an amazing conversation. We have this random woman talking with Jesus. But think about this. Who's there? Who are the other members in the audience? You have Jesus' twelve disciples. You have the host of the home. And you can be sure that Peter, James, and John, their heads were nodding when Jesus called this woman a dog. That's right. This Syrian Phoenician woman who's a Greek, you tell her, Jesus, she's a dog. But though the disciples hear dog, and maybe the audience hear dog, do you know what the the woman heard? First. 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 Let the children eat. Rather than see Jesus' reply as a no, she sees it as an opening. Why? We don't know exactly. For starters, though, if this is the Messiah that's only for the Jewish people, what's he doing in foreign territory? Maybe she sees what the disciples can't see. But she hears an an opening, and so she effectively says, Lord, I agree that the children, they deserve the table food. I accept that I'm an outsider, but I believe that the table you're setting is so grand that the few crumbs, just a few crumbs from your table is all that my daughter needs. I'm not asking for firsts. I'll take seconds. Would you grant me seconds? can some of the crumbs of God's bread fall into my daughter's mouth? This is why Jesus is, for such a reply. He's just blown away. Like You understand how bountiful my grace and mercy is that a crumb for your daughter is enough? Back in Israel, they're asking for more signs, more miracles, show us your power. And this woman who supposedly the theological outsider has the theological inside. I get you. And I'll take seconds, because seconds is enough. Now, this is very uncommon in our world today, at a lot of levels. If you come from a Western upbringing, the Western world, like the United States, we demand our rights. And pretty soon, everything's a right, right? <laughs> a right to everything. Pretty soon, the, you know, the national government's going to buy us cable TV. You just wait. Right? we need this but if you're from an Eastern mindset you actually live in a world of 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 karma where whatever you get you deserve it and you can't get out of it so suck it up buttercup or or people approach God at different levels some people approach God as a bloodthirsty tyrant and they 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 pour out their morality and their sacrifice and they do all of these good deeds because they're trying to appease this this tyrant in the sky that if I just do enough, then, then maybe like I won't get sick or my, my kids will make it through preschool. But some don't make God a tyrant. They make him a teddy bear. Right? If you like him in your life, he's comfy and you hold him close. But if you forget him and, he, and you leave him in the bed, no big deal. He was only there to comfort you anyway. It's not that he provides anything real, anything of true substance. But in this encounter, Jesus is saying, God is not a tyrant, nor is he a teddy bear. And the only person who gets this in the room is this supposed outsider. And she sees Jesus as a grand table host. And that the provisions of Jesus' table are so rich, so extravagant, so filling, that bread comes have the power to heal and save and satisfy But notice she doesn't demand her rights. She actually accepts her situation. I'm a dog. I'm an outsider. I'm a Gentile. But would you give mercy? Because you seem like the kind of person who gives mercy. (laughs) And despite her status as undesirable to polite society, Jesus desires her. Friends, people without pedigree get The Messiah, and I mean the term "get into senses." First, this woman gets the Messiah intellectually; she gets the facts, the truths about God, better than any other person. For instance, the prophet Isaiah, when he's writing 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, he has a number of prophecies about what is this Messiah for the Jews going to be like. And Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 49:6. He says, "It is too small a thing." for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small to save Israel. You're going to save to the ends of the earth, all the people, all the supposed undesirables. It's a little thing to save the Jews. Isaiah develops the idea a bit more earlier in the book when he says in Isaiah 25 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A rich feast for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And the woman without pedigree gets him intellectually. She understands them. She's (laughs) <laughs> the disciples are hopefully picking up what Jesus is putting down, but she's got it I'll take the crumbs because your crumbs are bountiful But she doesn't just get Jesus intellectually she gets him experientially Her daughter is saved Healed the disturbed girl is now of a right mind and this act of Jesus symbolizes that this women This woman and her daughter. They have a place at God's table they are welcomed as daughters. She receives what Israel receives. She is receiving what the Jews in the first century were receiving, God's Messiah bringing blessing, pulling back the curse and bringing blessing to those who believe in faith. Now as a kid, um, we would go to the Proctor family Christmas with my dad and his two sisters and on occasionally his brother from Hawaii. But we would gather every year, and we'd have oyster soup, chili, and chicken noodle. That's just what we did. But I remember the great privilege it was to turn 18. Because when you turned 18, two things. One, you got to sit at the adult table. And two, you got to participate in the, the, like the man-woman gift exchange. Right? It was this coming-of-age experience. You now had a seat at the table and whether it's an invite to the an invite to the adult table or an invitation with a group of friends it's a joy to be offered a seat at the table but simi- similarly it's embarrassing to get to not get an invitation it's a sense of shame that develops when you're not offered a seat what's wrong with me we ask why can't i be there and what's going on in this passage is jesus is teaching about what it means to have a have a seat at god's table At God's table, there is this feast that Isaiah prophesied, the greatest feast imaginable. It's a meal you don't want to miss. It's more than the party of the year. It's the party of eternity. And like great parties, the host provides party favors and gifts to all the guests. And the gifts display the greatness of the host. So when Jesus' little crumb heals a girl demon-possessed, it's showing you the greatness of the host. Remember the questions I asked from Miles Stanford earlier. There are two questions every person must settle as soon as possible. Does God fully accept me? And if so, upon what basis does he do so? So in my own heart this morning, I'm trying to answer these questions. Does God fully accept me? Yes. But it's because of his mercy, not my morality. Because of the precious blood of Jesus, not my performance or pedigree. So we are to come without pedigree to Messiah Jesus because his mercy is more than sufficient. How, how are you approaching Jesus today? Like, ask your heart. How are you approaching Jesus today? Are you coming with a spirit of self-righteousness like Mrs. Turpin? Or with the great humility of a first century Greek woman? Are you okay with your virtues being burnt up and outsiders and undesirables going ahead of you into the kingdom of God? What's your approach like? Do you come with confidence, contriteness? Do you come with persistence? Do you come with penitence? Do you come with faith or demands? Do you come in humility or hope or with pride and presumption? King David was the greatest king of all of Israel. But he had a great moral failure, an ugly moment in a very godly life. And out of that fall, he wrote Psalm 51, and in the heart of Psalm 51 is verse 17, where David says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So it says God doesn't despise broken spirits. God does not despise contrite hearts. He actually moves towards such souls. He moves towards such needs. On another occasion, David wrote in Psalm 138, 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. God keeps his distance from the proud, but he draws near to the humble. I was asking my question, my, this question in my own heart this week, so I'll ask it of you now. Are you willing to go as low as the Greek woman to be called a dog? Over the years, I've seen various people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They come to marvel Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. they long for heaven and its hope. But if I were to pick the most challenging truth for most Americans to accept is the truth that we are undeserving sinners. That's a tough pill to swallow. Interesting, the famous psychiatrist Carl Jung once uh, recalled a conversation between two rabbis. The first asked, why God no longer seemed to show up? The rabbi said, the God of Sinai might Once have thundered, but how can he be found today? And the second rabbi answered, There's no longer anyone who can bow low enough. Now what the rabbis debated, they missed. (laughs) That this is what's going on when Jesus comes to earth. He went low. No one, ever, no one has ever gone as low as Jesus. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and was born in Bethlehem. Later, he would offer his body for rejection, ridicule, and torture on a cross. Jesus came low to save those who are low. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be received. Jesus was treated like a dog so that we can be welcomed like sons And daughters. Jesus gave up his privileged seat at the table so we could have a spot at the table. We read Mark 7 and we kind of balk at someone being called a dog. We'll sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, but we really mean a wretch like thee. (laughs) But do I get to the place where I'm like, I'm the dog, I'm the undeserving? I'm the one that should be thrown out and pushed away. The foreign woman knew she didn't deserve a thing. She accepted her status, but she persisted, believing that Jesus could meet her need. She saw and heard Jesus, and though everyone else missed it, she was confident in Jesus. She was contrite and yet confident. You see her penitent heart, but she was persistent. Now, dear friends, one day there will be a wedding hall in heaven filled with guests. Jesus has purchased by his blood the provision for this meal, as well as the right and privilege for people, you and me, to be present at his table. Can you picture it? Over there is the Syrian Phoenician woman sitting there with her daughter. And over there is James and Peter and John. But then you start seeing some surprising guests People you thought quite unworthy to have a spot at the table. People you thought didn't deserve an invitation. But then for a moment, your own heart remembers your own unworthiness, your own sins, shame, and sorrows. And bubbling out of that momentary memory of unworthiness comes flooding into your heart God's reckless love a love that desires the undesirable, a love that makes worthy the unworthy, a love that sent the precious Son of God to an ugly cross. Jesus became poor so that we could be made rich. Jesus took our rejection so we could receive his welcome. Jesus became God's enemy so we could be welcomed as friends. The Son became an outsider so that we could come inside as sons and his daughters. Therefore, we come without privilege, without pedigree to the Messiah because his mercy is more than sufficient let's pray Father in heaven we thank you that you are a God of great grace and mercy and in in revealing your merciful heart I see my judgmental hearts what I think I deserve and but um, I, I, and now when I think in reality, I'm thankful that you don't give me what I deserve. What I deserve is judgment and hell. I don't deserve a spot at the table, but I thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life, who came so low. Lower than, almost beyond imagination, uh, yet it's true. And thank you that he, in give, going low and dying that death, pleased the father and the father raised him up on the third day and now all who are willing to receive that grace go low enough go underneath the table and ask for the crumbs they receive it and they too will be brought up raised up sharing the resurrection of the son of god your grace is truly amazing we love you in christ's name amen amen let's celebrate this christ around the lord's table david